0: Thank you. Welcome back to There is a Season, the Pete Seeger podcast. I'm your host, Adam Morse. To begin this episode and really start off the discussion for this podcast, we might want to ask ourselves, where did Pete Seeger's musical and political interests come from? Well, today we'll discuss Pete Seeger's early years, and in doing so we'll gain a deeper appreciation for how Seeger developed his musical and political foundation. But before we even begin THAT conversation, it is arguably just as important for us to consider how Seeger's professional life, if we are even allowed to call it that, took the directions that it did. If we are fans of Pete Seeger, we know and interpret him as a leader, organizer, speaker, singer, 12-string guitarist, poet, and a quality 5-string banjo player. Conventionally, one would think that Seeger's participation in political movements as a musician was a profession. Yet Pete's outlook on this is not so succinct. On this point, Seeger is quoted by his biographer, David Dunaway, as stating the following on the idea of a so-called career. Quote, to most people, that means making money and getting famous. And I was not concerned about this. I've lived with this terrible contradiction. If I splurge, if I go down and buy some fancy food I don't need, that's food that could keep somebody else alive. It's one reason I didn't want to go into the music industry and make a lot of money why I definitely didn't want to have a career with a capital C. Now it's true, I could have become a violinist, my mother wanted me to. I could have become a businessman, my grandfather wanted me to. I could have become a journalist, if I'd had more perseverance, I might have. If I'd had a grant to be a researcher, I could have been one. But I wasn't willing to take the discipline. To be a real researcher, you have to get that degree and fulfill all the academic obligations. Instead, I drifted into a particular niche I'd found for myself that no one else had ever found before. Unquote. That last sentence is rather reminiscent of how Bob Dylan would later describe himself in his memoir Chronicles, when he said that, quote, destiny was looking me right in the face, end quote. a thought that Dylan also expresses in his 2004 CBS interview that he had discovered something others hadn't quite uncovered yet. But it is this niche that Seeger describes, which is exactly what he discovered. Seeger was able to fill a space that had yet to be uncovered, a social, political, and musical territory that he was able to occupy and populate. This became one of Seeger's goals in life. At the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, and at many other concert performances during that decade, Pete Seeger spoke of his role as being a, quote, link in a chain, unquote. For others, whether that be artistically or politically, opening up resources and laying the groundwork, for other people regardless of whether they are musicians thinkers or rank and file people on the street pete Seeger was indeed a conduit for folk music and the purpose it could have and he wanted all that to be transferred and passed on not just for the sake of doing so but because the music had applications in the real world many of us have our own connections to pete Seeger. perhaps we discovered him through our family members and their record collections this was more the case for me when my mother got a cassette tape of the concert at Town Hall and played it in the car when I was a very young child. I would later learn that my grandfather worked with Pete Seeger at a summer camp called Camp Woodland near Phoenicia, New York in the late 1940s and for some reason printed Christmas cards with Pete and Toshi at some later point. Such a connection is quite distant, but it was enough to inspire me to discover folk music and start playing it for myself, a story not unlike many other people whose lives have found direction through the presence of Pete Seeger being a link in a chain. Perhaps some of us were lucky enough to know Seeger or play music with him, or knew some of the people he worked with. Maybe you had the chance to see Seeger live at some point. Whatever the case may be, a person's discovery of Pete Seeger always seems to be formative and can happen at any age and in any place. The music becomes part of our design, and we carry it with us. Pete Seeger certainly hoped that we would all apply that in our lives, both imaginatively and materially. Well, may
1: the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. Well, may the skiers turn, the swimmers learn, the lovers burn. Peace, may the generals learn when I'm far away. Well, may the world go.
0: objective here is to carry on this work and this tradition of being a link in a chain. Pete Seeger passed away in January 2014, at a time when so many things dramatically changed in our society. Ironically, it was as if one era ended and another began. As we reflect on the last 10 years since Pete Seeger's passing, we acknowledge the importance of uncovering what Pete Seeger gave us and how we can still draw on those resources as we move forward in our own lives and as global citizens. Pete Seeger was born May 3, 1919, in a hospital in New York City. The third son of Charles Seeger and Constance de Kleiber Edson. Charles Seeger is often understood as being the product of a stereotypical Yankee background. He had attended Harvard and was descended from some of the earliest European settlers in New England, one of whom was on the Mayflower. The Seeger surname, of course, has German roots, and Charles was also able to trace his ancestry back to the Crusades. Charles is often credited as being later responsible for pioneering the study of ethnomusicology in the 1920s, background which would later be in part responsible for exposing Pete to the music he came to know and love. Pete's mother, Constance, was raised in Tunisia and attended the Paris Conservatory, where she became an accomplished violinist. She later attended the school that would become known as Juilliard, as did Charles. Constance was also known to be related to a prominent Philadelphia family, the Curtises, and thus came from an upper-middle class background. While both Charles and Constance were trained classical musicians, Constance had high regard for the music, a point of contention that would later lead to disagreements about how Peter was to learn music. It was quite possibly this juxtaposition of musical perspectives that, in time, would influence Pete Seeger's own approaches. Before Peter was born, the Seeger family had been residing at Charles's parents' estate in Patterson, New York, 50 miles north of New York City. Prior to this, the family had been living in California, where Charles was teaching in the musicology department at UC Berkeley, where up to this point, Charles had been the youngest full professor in the history of the institution. While he was in high regard by his colleagues when he arrived at Berkeley, Charles left with a rather poor reputation. This was at least in part to do with how Charles became politicized during this period of his life. In brief, it is concluded that until he came to Berkeley, Charles had always been somewhat of an ignorant critic of socialism, like many of his colleagues. At one point, in an interesting twist of fate, an economist at Berkeley took Charles to task on his lack of knowledge. In this economist's words, he says, quote, to him, You don't live in the real world, sitting in your libraries. You could talk your heads off and it wouldn't make any difference to anything, This economist, whose name was Carlton Parker, offered to show Charles Seeger what he was talking about and took him up the San Joaquin Valley, where, for the first time in his life, Charles observed shanty towns of migrant farm workers. A world away from Berkeley, Charles cast eyes upon stray animals, makeshift homes made out of debris, and a latrine with a board over a ditch. Charles took notice that children age six and up were all busily picking produce, who were not far off in age from his sons Charlie and John. Charles had never seen anything like these living and working conditions, and returned to Berkeley as someone who was more ideologically motivated than before. John Cohen, late guitarist of the New Lost City Ramblers, explains this effort the Seegers began making to move towards having a more consciously political way of thinking and being.
1: The older Seeger family, you know, they were sort of uh, aristocratic background. That's, you know, like a hundred years ago. And then over and over continually in the last three generations, they've been, you know, really making a, a tremendous, not effort, but move to get away from that and, and to understand what popular daily life is about and the issues of, of, of working people. So it's, I think that's a very big force. In understanding
0: Pete. This initial political socialization led Charles to publicly giving a speech back in the Bay Area about he had witnessed. In doing so, he was heckled by a member of the audience, who was probably a member of the industrial workers of the world, who implied that Charles was a phony and that the people he was speaking to had been familiar with this phenomenon their entire lives. Charles likely felt like an imposter about this and decided to begin frequenting the office of the IWW across the bay over in San Francisco. Eat, by by. Hey, in that glorious land in the sky, play a work and pray, live on hay. Hey, you hit fly in the sky when you die, that's the lie. The starvation army they play. And they shout and they clap and they pray. But uh, when they got all your coins on the drum, uh, they will tell you in your honor. This attempt for Charles to balance his career and political interests became a point of contention for the Berkeley Music Department and for the Seeger family. Charles Seeger undoubtedly had a period of professional success at Berkeley, completing several compositions and publishing a book. His belief that music should be understood through a social and historical lens got in the way, however, as his department disagreed, affecting Charles's potential career advancement. Additionally, Charles became known as someone who was uncompromising in his service responsibilities in the department, and was reportedly not easy to work with. On top of this, Charles began spending more of his time passing out leaflets for the IWW. When World War I broke out in 1914, Charles began identifying as being anti-war, like many in the Socialist movement during Woodrow Wilson's first term in office. This made Charles an outcast in the extended Seeger family, especially with his brother Allen, who was enthusiastic about the war and enlisted in the French Foreign Legion. Alan Seeger, also author of the famous World War I poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death, was later killed in France in July 1916. By 1916, Berkeley as an institution had become very pro-ally, with the exception of the Music department, given their respect for the long line of German composers. Being anti-war became further contentious by the spring of 1917 when Wilson signed the Espionage Act, which brought to trial individuals who were against. US involvement in the war. Charles’s opinions around the Berkeley campus were not positive, and the department began suggesting a sabbatical would be appropriate. Eventually, in disagreement with the war, Charles applied for conscientious objector status. Charles knew another faculty member that had also done this, and was expected to report to a camp in the Sierras, where rumors had been circulating that people with CO status were physically being abused, strung up by ropes and blasted with fire hoses. Charles might have been protected from military service by his full professorship, but was effectively fired anyway by the president of the university. In September 1918, with Charles in poor health and with little money, the Seegers left California and headed east. Did they beat
1: the drums slowly, did they sound the fight lowly? Did the rifles fire or ye as they lowered you down? Did the vehicles sing the last post in chorus?
0: After returning from Berkeley and following Peter's birth, Charles Seeger felt remarkably defeated. On top of this, Charles was informed by a doctor that the stress he experienced at Berkeley had affected him to the point where he didn't have much longer to live. In an effort to revitalize himself and the Seeger family, Charles decided to build a trailer and take the Seeger family on a trip to the American South. The purpose of this trip was to, quote, bring music to the poor people of America, unquote, because Charles assumed that the poor people didn't already have their own music. In November 1920, the Seegers traveled south through New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, ending up in Pinehurst, North Carolina, at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. During this time, the Seegers enjoyed experiencing the countryside and giving free concerts of classical music to the rural North Carolinians. While the Appalachian dwellers who heard the Seegers' music were amused by these artistic presentations, Charles did not set off any desire for the residents of Pinehurst to discover the European classics. On their last day in North Carolina, the Seegers played a show of Chopin and violin concertos. But then suddenly the North Carolinians brought out fiddles and guitars and played for the Seegers, surprising Charles, who had not thought about the possibility of local folks playing their own music. The Seegers certainly had never heard this style of music before. Ironically, this was probably Pete's first folk concert. I wish I was a mole in the
1: ground, yes, I wish I was a mole in the ground, I was a mole in the ground, I'd root that mountain down, and I wish I was a mole in the ground.
0: but Pete Seeger's formative years were spent in the 1920s in Patterson, New York. It was in this environment that Pete had access to fields and forests. He would practice woodcraft, use bows and arrows, and as the phrase goes, play Indian, in perhaps an unintentional and naive act of appropriation common to many white male youth in the 20th century. Pete also read Ernest Thompson Seton, being inspired by the open space around him, and absorbed the ideas of individualistic self-reliance and moral cleanliness. It was likely this period of life that gave Pete Seeger a strong sense of place when it came to being in nature, and felt most at home within such a space. It was also during this time that Pete began absorbing music, largely coming from over the radio. Pete and his brothers heard Jimmy Rogers, the Carter family, another pop acts in the late 1920s. While Patterson was semi-rural, the radio was a new technology that, in a particular way, connected Pete... To the outside world. The corner, I didn't mean no harm. Along come a police, he took me by the arm. It was down in Memphis, corner of Beale and Maine. He says, Big boy. You'll have to tell me your name. But not long after the Pinehurst trip, Charles and Constance had begun fighting over their financial situation. Constance had taken a job as a music teacher to try and make ends meet, in part in frustration also over the fact that her husband had not established a formal position. But in addition, Constance had, in an act of independence, acquired a bank account without Charles's knowledge. Charles was outraged by this, and this was effectively the end of Charles and Constance's marriage, and Charles took the three boys to his parents' house. The last big quarrel, however, was how Peter was to be musically trained. Constance was committed to Brahms, Bach, and Beethoven, the three Bs, while Charles and his interests in the social dimensions of music was fascinated by Bartok's forays into folk melodies and Shostakovich's compositions. To make things more complicated, Peter refused vocal and instrument lessons and was defiant when it came to learning to read music. His discovery of fretted instruments came when his parents gave him a ukulele. Let's listen to Pete tell this story in his own words.
1: Now your father and your mother were both trained musicians in Potted Juilliard, and, and and what was it like growing up in that family with the music that was around? Well, uh, mother- my my biological mother uh, split with my father when I was about eight years old, but she gave she was a very well trained violinist, studied at the Conservatoire de Paris, and. She gave miniature fiddles to my two older brothers, but they rebelled. And I came along and my father had the sense too, said, oh, let Peter enjoy himself and see what happens. Well, she left musical instruments all around the house. I refused to learn to read music, but by the time I was five or six, I could bang out a tune on a piano or a marimba or a squeeze box or an auto harp or a whistle. And then she gave me a ukulele, as I said, at age eight. I got into a tenor banjo from that and later on into a five-stringer. And in my thirties, I started learning a little more about the guitar before that just in bass plunk, bass plunk. But uh, I learned the idea that you keep a steady beat with your thumb and you get the off beats with your finger on the high strings And you get all these syncopated notes,
0: like Libby Cotton did with Freight Train, Freight Training. As we are able to hear, Pete's discovery of playing music for himself came very organically and independently. But in terms of his musical participation in playing music with other people, Peter's first interactions were when he was sent off to boarding school. Constance and Charles had sent Peter to boarding school for the first time at age four. A remarkably young age, even by the strictest of standards. Pete grew up in large part away from his family, and like many of his generation, was distant from his parents. At this time, Pete was known for all intents and purposes as a loner, preferring to be self-reliant, as he often needed to be, and was not outspoken in large groups of people he did not know very well. When he went away to boarding school at Spring Hill, Connecticut, Pete somewhat came out of his shell. Using a book of sea shanties Constance had given him, Pete organized a singing group with a fellow classmate. In doing so, Pete discovered he could become the center of attention, and his shyness would briefly evaporate and he would be able to ignore the loneliness and isolation he regularly experienced. When Pete graduated from the 8th grade at Spring Hill in 1932, he came home to his father's place in New York City. Charles had been teaching at Juilliard and was beginning a stint teaching at the New School. When he came home, Pete learned that his father had just recently remarried. Charles's new wife, Ruth Crawford Seeger, was also a composer and would later become known for her contributions to the musical discipline of ultramodernism. During this time in his life, out of the rest of his family members, Pete is said to have been most connected to his father. His mother's continued insistence on Pete learning music formally alienated Pete, and Pete's brothers were five to seven years older than him. During the next several years of his life, Pete's relationship with Charles became increasingly meaningful. Being in New York City at 13 meant Pete traveled around town both independently and with Charles and Ruth. Charles would take Pete through the Lower East Side to show the geographical contradictions and class disparities between the spaces Pete had inhabited in his life up to this point. Charles also notably introduced Pete to the Pierre de Gaetaire Club, also known as the Composers' Collective. For those unfamiliar, Pierre de Gaetaire was a French-Belgian worker and composer who lived from 1848 to 1932, and wrote the music to the famous anthem "La Internationale." The de Gaetaire Club was an association of mostly left-leaning classical musicians who had organized together to compose music for the left and the working class to be used on picket lines in strikes and other demonstrations. Many members were concerned with unfair practices in the employment of musicians in the early days of the New Deal. In 1935, the club released three issues of a music journal titled The Music Front, which sold for five cents a copy. Interestingly, one well-known member of the club was composer Aaron Copeland. But what we ought to acknowledge is the style of song being composed in this group. When we hear descriptions like protest songs and strike songs, our imagination seems to immediately go to something like Phil Oaks, Greenwich Village in the early 60s, Union songs from the coal mining region, Sunhouse or Buka White singing about prison or tenant farming, or working on the levee in the Mississippi Delta. This imagination could not be further from the music being hashed out by the folks in the Degataire Club in New York City in the early 1930s. Neither Charles Seeger nor the Composers Collective were yet very empirically steeped in traditional folk or vernacular music, and in hindsight, it is maybe a bit amusing to envision protest songs for workers written in the 12-tone style. Charles, in fact, entered a competition for a new May Day song with other members of the collective, but lost to Aaron Copland. Here's Copland's music for Into the Streets May 1st, set to Alfred Hayes's poem of the same name. shake the midtown towers, crash the downtown air. Come with the swarm of banners, come with the earthquake bread, bells ring out of your belfry's red flag, keep out your red out of the shops and factories up. With the sickle and hammer, comrades, these are our tools. A song and a banner. I hope I'm not the only one out there that finds it challenging to imagine thousands of people trying to harmonize to this in solidarity during a march. Ironically, this very pro-communist piece of lyricism was musically performed not in the street, but in New York City College Auditorium on April 29, 1934, and sung by a whole chorus for an audience. Ashley Pettis, writing for the left intellectual publication New Masses in May 1934, describes that the jury for the musical selection of this performance was made up of club members and rank-and-file individuals. Charles Seeger had entered the competition under the pseudonym Carl Sands, and Pettis directly responds to Charles's composition with lukewarm reviews. Quote, that of Carl Sands is of a familiar character, in no sense experimental. The harmonies are simple, the tune catchy, the whole somewhat in the style of Stephen Foster, which one of the judges considered to be typically American, though obviously America of another day, Unquote. We wonder what Charles's version might have sounded like, as there seems to be no record available to the public. Irregardless... This review from New Masses, certainly in comparing Charles's music to Stephen Foster, suggests that Charles was investigating more traditional and folk-based approaches to songwriting. But by the fall of 1932, Pete would leave New York to begin high school at Avon Old Farms in Avon, Connecticut, one of the more competitive boarding schools in New England. Pete was attending Avon on scholarship, but was among many other children of well-known individuals, such as poet and writer Archibald MacLeish with his son Kenneth. The setting of Avon Old Farms blew Pete away, as the architecture of the school resembles a late Middle Ages village, with its stone buildings and surrounding woodlands. It is lightly entertaining to imagine Pete Seeger being in such an environment when he just previously had been surrounded by left-wing musicians, intellectuals, and other leftist activists, and now resided in such an elite space. It was at Avon that Pete acquired his first banjo a four-string tenor that he bought off of a faculty member after begging Constance for the $10 to have it. In learning the basics of the tenor banjo, Pete was finally able to begin playing music with others. With his banjo, he joined Avon's Hot Jazz Club, performing pop jazz tunes like Night and Day and Blue Skies. Pete did begin taking some singing lessons at school, however his teacher thought of him as still being unfocused, as Pete wasn't overly interested in technicalities, and saw music as more of a kind of amusement. In Chapel, for example, where singing harmony was looked down upon, Pete would quietly step to the back and harmonize anyway in protest. During his years at Avon, Pete began to be more politically socialized. He had previously published a small periodical as a student at Spring Hill, but now at Avon he started another, the Avon Weekly Newsletter. Pete was known to be very scrupulous as an editor and established high expectations for output for his writers. In working at the paper, Pete had his first entanglements with censorship when he attempted to publish a story about Kenneth MacLeish's pet snake that had gotten loose in the dorms. While it was a reportedly entertaining tale, the school administration forced Pete to cut it. Pete attempted to stick to his guns with a more serious story, though, written by a Jewish student on anti-Semitism. Pete was confronted by several reactionary students who demanded to know the identity of the author, and Pete was also called in to speak to the administration, who gave him a tongue lashing. There were only a few Jewish students at Avon, and the school administration likely tried to guess who the article's author was but Pete's freedom to run the paper was threatened if he continued to publish things like this. This, of course, would only be the beginning of Pete's involvement with powers that would attempt to silence him. Pete did begin developing his politics in other ways, however, such as with reading New Mass's magazine, which an English teacher secretly acquired for him. As David Dunaway suggests, Pete had become a, quote, closet radical, unquote. But aside from struggling to express his political inclinations, Pete was faced with negotiating his personal and musical desires as well. When he could, Pete spent a substantial amount of time hanging out in the woods around the school campus, even spending time on the regular with a logger from Maine by the name of Vern Priest. Priest knew the Connecticut landscape around Avon like the back of his hand, and gave Pete the job of chopping wood for his cabin, which allowed Pete the privilege of spending time at Vern's place, To get away from campus. The imagination of Ernest Thompson Seton was still alive for Pete, and he longed to be on his own in nature. Additionally, while he was now playing some music in a group, Pete was attempting to navigate the musical landscape around him. Given the era when he grew up, Pete Seeger was caught between different musical traditions. While he enjoyed Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, and George Gershwin, he was also captivated by traditional American music, which was now finally being discovered by urban intellectuals. On a break from school, for example, the artist Thomas Hart Benton, a colleague of Charles's from the New School, gave Pete a record of Doc Boggs' version of Pretty Polly. This record in particular sent shockwaves through Pete, falling in love with its modal tones. Pretty Polly would become one of Pete's favorite Appalachian tunes and became a staple of Pete's live performances a couple of decades later. But, overall, while Pete was, for all intents and purposes, social enough while at school, he did mostly keep to himself. He largely rejected athletics and what kinds of cars his doormate's fathers had. These types of conventional interests did not amuse him. Politics, music, and nature was something Pete strived to focus on independently. When Pete graduated Avon in nineteen thirty six he spent the summer with Charles and ruth at their new home in Maryland. Charles had left the New School and was newly employed by Franklin Roosevelt's Resettlement Administration, where he oversaw music programs. The Washington, d c area was a pleasant change for Pete in getting away from the social climate of Avon. Pete suddenly now had access to a plethora of leftist intellectuals through his father's networks, as well as lots of traditional music. It was during this summer in Maryland that Pete Seeger first met the now-famous archivist and song collector Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax was four years older than Pete, had gone to Harvard, and had already spent several years traveling through the American South with his father, John, recording traditional American tunes. Ruth was very busy these days as well, as she had won a Guggenheim Fellowship to study composition in Germany, but was busy transcribing raw field-recorded tunes for the Lomaxes. As such, Pete had a remarkable amount of access to music literally flowing through his house. Let's listen to a clip of a conversation between the late activist and folk singer Utah Phillips and Pete at the Western Heritage Labor Festival, where Pete emphasizes Alan Lomax's role in collecting folk songs and promoting collaboration in folk music.
1: I think if you don't know about Alan Lomax, let me tell you a little bit. He... Uh, still alive. He's had a stroke though, and he's only uh, not as fully alive as he was. Although I'm wishing he's fighting and hoping that if he keeps on fighting in a few years, he'll recover from his stroke. But he can't walk too easy or talk too well now. But in the ni- middle 1930s, he meets my father, a theoretician. And they say uh, instead of expecting educated people, in the cities to write the great new music of the future, let's go uh, pick up on the great music that's already been made and build upon it. And they took, as example, Aunt Molly Jackson of Kentucky, who had written The Miner's Wife, Hungry, Ragged Blues, and other songs like that. Uh, She came out of an old Scots-Irish tradition and she used old tunes and put new words to them and her younger half-brother Jim Garland and her younger half-sister Sari Ogan, also were making up songs. I Don't Want Your Millions, Mister, The Murder of Harry Sims. And they said, build up on this kind of music and we may get the best new music of the future. Uh, Alan Lomax couldn't persuade his father to put these songs in a book. He had a big stack of, of uh, scratchy field recordings and. Uh, words from various places. And when Woody and I arrived on the scene in 1940, me coming from New England and Woody from Oklahoma, and started working together, Alan says, why don't you make a book out of this? And he tossed several hundred songs at it. And uh, I thought of the title, Hard-Hitting Songs for Hard-Hit People. And Woody uh, wrote little introductions for the songs. In 1941, we did not get a publisher, but Sing Out magazine in 1964, 66, did get it printed. It's right now out of print, although I hope someday it'll be print again. But Alan Lomax was a very important person. He said, uh, the music being produced by Hollywood and Tin Pan Alley is 99% phony. Occasionally, a good song comes through, but uh, And you had had to admit, after all, Greensleeves was a pop song of the 16th century and Old Dan Tucker was the hit song of 1844, so you can't say that pop songs don't occasionally produce some good songs. But most of them are so insincere and phony. And by contrast, he had these great songs he'd collected all around the country, House of the Rising Sun and uh, so on, the songs of Lead Belly, uh, Midnight Special, and so on. And Alan said, let's make these America's greatest, famous, best known songs. And when he heard the Almanac singers sing, he says, you may not know it, but you're doing the most important musical job in America. You're showing city people how to sing these country songs. Don't put on airs, just sing them out. Get crowds joining in. And Alan was so persuasive, he was very persuasive. He got, he uh, kept us working. He did the same thing with Woody Guthrie. He said, you are a ballad maker. Don't let anything distract you from being a ballad maker. You're like the man who wrote the the ballad of Jesse James. You're like the woman who wrote The House of the Rising Sun. You're a ballad maker. And Woody took that advice seriously and kept on doing it until he could do it no more.
0: It's worth noting for our listeners that the year of the interview here between Utah Phillips and Pete is unknown, based upon what is available to the public for research purposes. As we are able to hear, it had to have been recorded sometime after the two strokes Allen experienced in 1995 and his death in 2002. During the summer of 1936, Pete had sat down to learn some of these Appalachian banjo tunes on several occasions, but discovered he could not play them. All these songs were played on the five-string banjo, not a four-string tenor that one strummed in the Dixieland style. At one point, Charles approached Pete and asked him why he was still playing the tenor. Charles suggested they visit a folk music festival in Asheville, North Carolina, for Pete to see what he might play instead. Later that summer, Charles and Pete headed south to Asheville for the ninth annual Folk Song and Dance Festival. For Pete, this was a relatively exotic experience with crowds of mountain people, unique foods, and traditional music being played on a multitude of folk instruments at all hours of the day and night. Pete was particularly impressed by two five-string banjo players, Samantha Bumgarner and the other Bascom Lamar Lunsford. What impressed Pete immediately was the balance of rhythmic percussiveness and melody notes that could be performed at the same time. Pete was also drawn to the music lyrically, observing how real life was exemplified in the poetry of the songs. What is important to acknowledge here is that Bascom Lunsford's style was unique, where he plucked up and brushed down on the strings, which was a bit different than classic frailing, where one mostly plucks downward. It was after this approach that Pete modeled his own style, as Lunsford was just the first person Pete saw play up close. One thing was for certain, though. The ukulele and the five string tenor banjo were out. Oh, I led
1: her over hills and valleys so deep. I led her over hills and valleys so deep. And then pretty college, she began to weep. Willie, oh Willie, I'm of your way. Oh Willie, oh Willie, I'm of your way. I'm you are going far to lead me astray.
0: Given his father's connections, Pete was able to follow up his discovery of the five-string banjo by visiting the Library of Congress, where he had full access to its growing collection of field recordings brought in by Alan Lomax and others. With these records, he was able to compare styles of banjo playing between artists like Uncle Dave Macon, Lily Mae Ledford and the Coon Creek Girls, Wade Ward, and many more. He hoped to meet all these people eventually and see them play up close one day. Pete nearly wore down these records entirely by slowing them to a snail's pace to hear each note so he could get it right himself. As we will learn in later episodes, Pete's mastery of all this, of course, took years. But despite his work and his enthusiastic discovery of a new genre, Pete did not envision playing music professionally. He had his sights set on becoming a journalist, because this way he could, in David Dunaway's words, support himself and change the world. As the Seeger family believed that Pete should receive a proper education, he matriculated at Harvard University in the fall of 1936. He attended on a partial scholarship, combined with a job as a washer in a boarding house, and money scraped together by his brothers Charlie and John. Pocket money was scant. But Pete went because that's what was expected of him. His father, his brother John, and his deceased uncle Alan all had gone to Harvard. But going to college in Cambridge, Massachusetts, did not suit Pete like it had his family members. He wanted to study journalism, but it wasn't offered, and so Pete took sociology courses instead, which did not keep his interest and he seldom did much studying. Most of Pete's time was spent cycling down the Charles River or playing around with songs in his dorm room. Regarding politics at Harvard, Pete was initially quite reticent about sharing his ideological leanings. By his sophomore year, Pete started another newspaper, The Harvard Progressive, with classmate Arthur Kenoy, who later went on to become a radical lawyer and defended the Chicago 8 in 1968. Pete also began reading Lenin's book, Imperialism, and joined the Young Communist League. When Pete was involved, the YCL was organizing around trying to have more influence in the more liberal American Student Union, another political organization of the 1930s. Pete was elected secretary of the Harvard chapter of the ASU, but kept his more radical political ideas hidden. All in all, coming from the Anglo-Saxon and Protestant background that he did, Pete Seeger did not face any major social discrimination of his own. He was neither black, Catholic, nor Jewish. Pete saw his role at this time as more empathizing with others' causes. His extended family, however, was distraught with what they interpreted as a lack of direction, and excoriated Pete for getting C's in college. The music available in Pete's Harvard community was also insufficient for him. He found himself unhappy with the audiences at concerts he would attend, believing that they should be more involved in the music that they were hearing. In the end, school was inhibiting Pete from following his true interests. He was ultimately put on academic probation and lost his scholarship, and left Harvard in April of 1938. David Dunaway notes an interesting fact in his biography of Pete during his final days on campus, when Pete passed John F. Kennedy hurrying through Harvard Yard with his personal secretary. If John Kennedy was the Harvard class of 1940's most well-known graduate, it is arguable to say that Pete Seeger was perhaps its most famous dropout. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our second episode of There is a Season, which is really our first episode of any major content. You know, my vision in establishing this podcast is to have the first several episodes be historical like this for the purpose of tracing how Pete Seeger's musical and political background gets shaped and formed. Uh, And that's just because I think it's essential for future episodes to think now about how that process began for for Pete Seeger and so I hope to provide that that foundation for having future conversations. Um, undoubtedly there is a lot of detail here, I admit. Um, I didn't include all of what I would like to for the sake of brevity. I really did include what I what I think is essential. Um, but what I think is of interest to us, um, particularly is this deep-seated and unwavering, sociopolitical sense of self that begins brewing for Pete at a very young age. Um, and by looking at his earlier life we get to see his passion for the environment, his passion for fairness and truth, and how that sort of subjectivity was formed that led Pete to doing um, everything that he did um, with his later life and you know even indeed after he leaves Harvard um, and his traveling with Woody and going to eventually back to New York and meeting Lead Belly and doing the almanacs before World War II and what came after. So I think that's also useful for all of us listeners to think about in regard to our own subjectivities, how we come to be musical and political in the ways that we do or in the ways that we don't, Um, when we think about the conditions um, affecting who we are and the values that we have and don't have. Um, As of the publishing of this episode, the podcast doesn't really have much of an online presence yet right now, and I haven't really decided what that should look like for something like this. I have launched a Patreon, which you're free to check out, but it isn't fully developed yet. Um, I'll keep you all informed in future episodes if you want to be involved with the podcast on those sorts of levels. There is, of course, an irony behind asking for money, to do a podcast about Pete Seeger, yet at the same time it's not like there aren't costs associated with producing this. But either way, feel free to join at patreon.com slash Pete Seeger podcast if you'd like to receive updates there. There is a season, the Pete Seeger podcast is written, recorded, and produced by Adam C. Morris. Musical selections for this episode include Quite Early Morning by Pete Seeger, performed by Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie. Well May the World Go by Pete Seeger, performed by Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie. Into the Streets May 1st, words by Alfred Hayes and music by Aaron Copeland, performed by Thomas Jester. Blue Skies by Irving Berlin, performed by Pete Seeger. No Man's Land aka Greenfields of France by Eric Bogle. Blue Yodel Number 9 by Jimmy Rogers. Pie in the Sky, written by Joseph Hillstrom and performed by Utah Phillips, Pretty Polly, performed by the Coon Creek Girls, and I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground, performed by Bascom Lamar Lunsford. See you all next time.